Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing data-centric engineering, which follows on from the launch in July of phase 2.0 of the data-centric engineering program, a partnership between the Lloyds Register Foundation and the Alan Turing Institute. To discuss this is Professor Adam Sobey, Professor of Data-Centric Engineering at the University of Southampton and Programme Director of the Data-Centric Engineering Programme. Professor Sobey, welcome to the podcast. Good morning and thanks very much for having me. So let's start with the really obvious question. What is data-centric engineering? Yeah, so the term data-centric engineering really comes from a knowledge register foundation for CyReview where they were looking at sort of the, the use of AI and machine learning and how prevalent it was becoming and perhaps its usage in uh, engineering. They've kind of looked at the way in which things are changing currently. Uh, there's, a, there's a change from the way that we've done things traditionally uh, and introduction of new tools where these are becoming more data-centric. So we like the idea of basically coming up with a new term to represent that. We've always used data and engineering. It's been a key part of everything that people have done for many years. We normally take measurements and, and draw empirical conclusions. But recently there's been data at multiple scales in time and space, uh, measurement and instrumentation by full scale sensor networks, uh, computer infrastructure on a larger scale than we've ever seen before. And that's led to sort of new theories, technologies, markets and business models, uh, which we sort of need to account for. And that's what we sort of see as data-centric engineering. Perhaps like a, an example which might help is something like in the shipping industry. We've been able to work out the speed power curve of ships for, for over a century. And that allows us to make optimization of the vessels. But that's been really difficult to do, uh, accounting for all the different weather conditions in very large sea states, yeah, in areas where the complexity is very high. We're still not actually able to model these things in a, at home uh, and, and make sort of an understanding of that. The experiments are very expensive. Uh, and so a way that we can actually look at that is by looking at real data, taking sensor data off of ships and utilizing that in our models to gain that better understanding. And that's what we'd see as a sort of data-centric engineering view of the world. So if I, I was to ask you more generally, what are the kind of things you can do with data-centric engineering that you couldn't do with traditional engineering, it might fall into some of these categories you've mentioned, things over time, things over geographical space, things where you've got multiple datas a, a lot. Is, is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Yeah, the added complexity that we haven't been able to traditionally include into engineering is, uh, a lot of engineering has been about removing that complexity and giving us simplified equations that we can deal with day to day. But then we end up with large safety factors, and that leads to inefficiency in our operations and in our designs. And so what we can do now is utilize that data to make up for that lack of understanding for where the compute becomes particularly difficult. And that allows us to have a better understanding of, of how our vessels or our, our artifacts are actually operating. And that then allows us to uh, make changes to the design processes or operate in a way that's more efficient. So, for example, in the shipping example I gave, by using a data-centric view of ship power prediction, we're able to give a 2% error on the uh, power of the ship in any sea condition, which is much lower than traditionally. And through that, we can now optimize the, the way the vessel moves through the water. 
uh, and give an 8% reduction in fuel usage just by changing the way that it's operating without any changes in design, which I think is, is really impressive. And those kind of reductions are both good for the environment and good for profits of companies, right? So, Yeah, exactly. I mean, 8% fuel savings on a large vessel, you're probably talking about vessels being able to, to burn through 100 to 200 tonnes of fuel a day on some of the larger ones. It's quite a lot of fuel savings. It's a lot of CO2 saving, a lot of money savings. And in many of these cases as well, we can do that without reducing safety. Okay. So this is where we are now. I'm going to take you back a few years and sort of ask you why the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Alan Turing Institute set up this data-centric engineering programme uh, and what have been it, some of its highlights in phase one? Yeah, so the reason we came together, I think, is the, through this foresight review that Lloyd's Register Foundation produced and started to get an understanding that there was a, a need to do this. Lloyd's Register Foundation are driven by wanting to improve safety, and they could see how this sort of improvement in additional sensors, AI, machine learning, could help us understand how things were operating better and improve the safety. The Alan Turing Institute is the National AI Institute, uh, and was just really keen to have engineering as part of that. It's a core sector to the UK. It's a big part of what we do, and you can see the way in which uh, engineering AI and machine learning needs to look a little bit different to other areas. So we need specialist research in that area and we need a specialist community. So I think the idea was that that community wasn't really coming together and that they wanted to use the Alan Turing Institute as the centerpiece for that, to, to start a community in data-centric engineering, to bring together industry and academics, to understand these challenges, perform world-leading research, to make an impact on the real world but also to affect global policy, standards, regulation, uh, and also to train the future engineers of tomorrow to make sure that both our graduate engineers, our apprentice engineers, uh, and our current engineers have the, the continuing professional development they need to keep up with this rapid technology change. And how has uh, this idea of data-centric engineering, and I believe that sort of term first came out of this foresight review that you've been talking about, how has that kind of spread across the UK? How's it spread across the global engineering community? Yeah, so we've seen a really widespread, uh, both in the UK and more broadly. So you're now seeing things like MSCs in data-centric engineering already being set up. Uh, there's doctoral training centers specializing in data-centric engineering. I'm actually, uh, we believe the first professor of data-centric engineering uh, in the UK, probably globally. So you're seeing it as part of like the academic fabric. You're also seeing the way in which this, uh, the terminology on Google has increased rapidly since 2014. So we can look at a trend of, of this term increasing. I think another example is that we have a journal now specifically on data-centric engineering with Cambridge University Press that looks to publish academic work in this place. But also it's really interesting because for an academic journal, it doesn't just produce uh, research papers, but also looks at translational papers. So impact papers, how do we actually turn this sort of work into real world products? How do we see changes in the real world? How is data-centric engineering changing the world? And through that, we're building a sort of more global community uh, with editors-in-chief specifically targeted to cover Europe US and Asia, so that we have everyone coming on board it, it, as part of this. I think it's been really interesting to then see the growth. And through the Turing, we've 
focus a lot on the UK through our first sort of five years. But as we move forward into phase two of our data-centric engineering program, we're looking to increase that internationalism with a real focus on the developing South and how we can actually bring these tools and practices to, to those groups that may not traditionally have had access to these tools. Well, let's think a little bit about the international scene, because uh, science and engineering is this very strange mixture of being intensely collaborative and at the same time intensely competitive. So how does the UK at the moment sit within the sort of the global scene of data centric engineering, academia and data centric engineering companies and so on? Yes, yeah, so I think UK is doing really well in this area. We we hit traditionally above our weight in terms of the sort of research impact that we would have compared to the funding that we might that might be seen in, in other places and, and the quantity of people. We're really lucky that we have a very global community in our academic research in the UK, with lots of people from all over the world coming in uh, to work with us, either by joining our universities or, or by collaborating with us. So we have very strong links with the United States with a lot of European countries and increasingly in Asia as well. And so I think that's sort of seeing a big spread of the community. I think our strengths in, in AI and machine learning have, have always been there. We, we have very strong computer science degrees in the UK, and that's helped pull across those techniques into the engineering universities, where we also have traditional strengths, uh, excellent lab resources to, to test these theories, and a real drive to do that. I think the innovation community is growing, the, the innovation funding is there and, and growing. So we're seeing a, a much greater capability for us to see that impact. And I think these new research institutes that the government are putting in place, like the Alan Turing Institute, are really helping that, that valley of death, where we've traditionally seen a, a fall off there. We now have places like the Alan Turing Institute that specialize in pulling that, that information through to the industry and helping them actually develop pieces of code pieces of software regulation standards that help us remain competitive. So you talked about the value of death and pull through into industry. So let's talk a little bit about industry, industry in the UK in particular, but, but more generally. What are the kind of commercial opportunities that come out of data centric engineering? Yeah, so I think it, it's, it's a wide range of different ways in which people can use these things from very simple usages of the current data they already have available to things like a 3D printed bridge that was developed as part of a program here with industry and a number of universities that's now in, in Amsterdam. That bridge took six months to 3D print and it has sensors embedded all the way through it. Those sensors are used for things like structural health monitoring, but also for sort of pollution monitoring, sound monitoring. So by sort of as a demonstrator for the capabilities for the uh, data centric engineering, you could place these bridges in different places around the city and start to actually really start to get a pervasive feel for what's going on within your city to optimize it. And that's at the very high end of what we can see, the very expensive sort of sense, sensor expensive area. On the other hand, we've worked with the shipping industry to look at uh, corrosion digital twin, where we see data measurements every two and a half to five years, very limited data. That data isn't specifically gathered for modeling purposes, it's gathered for safety purposes. So it's not really the type of data we want, but by being smart with sort of experimental data, we can build a digital twin that's actually relatively accurate and sort of understand much, much more closely how that corrosion is growing over time. 
So you've got all these different spectrums of, of this data search engineering from the very expensive, full of data, or full of sensors, really pushing things forwards to the, let's make the most use of the data that we actually have to understand our phenomena. Well, it sounds to me, you're describing a situation where you've got changes to big established industries with a little bit also of the development of traditionally new industries, some of which will be effectively providing expertise and consultation for these big established industries. Uh, have, have I sort of got that right? Yeah, so I think this is exactly the problem that we have going forwards, is that it's not just a technology change, but there will need to be business changes to make full use of these tools. And that's challenging for different companies to understand and, and to utilize. So there will be a sort of mixture of those things going forwards. A really nice example was uh, underground urban farming, where there are some people making use of tunnels under London to actually grow farm produce. So it's really good in a sustainable way. And you have amazing control over the environment because you don't have to deal with you know, things above ground. So you have light control, water control and everything. By building a digital twin of these plants, modeling the plants and linking that to the sensor data, able to grow these plants in a way that, that actually kind of makes financial sense. Uh, and that's like a totally new industry that's popping up that, that does something very different from what we've done traditionally. And so I think it's interesting to then see how that can be propagated across other business models as well. And are we seeing a growth in sort of UK data centric engineering consultancy? to put it a better way, because it sounds like some of what you're talking about, digital twins or whatever, you don't have to be physically integrated with the company to do some of that work. Yeah, so we're starting to see smaller companies pop up, and I think that's where the real innovation is. Uh, there tend to be spin-outs from universities at the moment where the capabilities are there. I think a key problem we have here at the moment is, is people. So we, we're seeing a drop-off in the number of trained engineers. We're seeing a, a reduction in the number of apprentices and so we, we perhaps don't have the number of engineers we need in this country. Then you combine that with a skill set that also requires a large amount of computer science knowledge. And the, the space on the Venn diagram becomes very small. And so we desperately need to encourage more people into engineering in this country uh, and then to, to populate them with the skills that they need to actually make most use of the, these different tools. And until that happens, I think, like you say, the a small number of consultants or pop-up companies are going to have great success because they have such a niche but that others are going to struggle to compete with. Well, certainly the uh, the desire to increase the number of students in engineering is well known and, and beyond this podcast to solve. Um, but maybe we could talk a little bit about once those engineering students have arrived, what sort of changes uh, do we need to see in engineering teaching at universities to make sure that when they leave, they leave with some of these data-centric engineering skills? Yeah, I think it's it's probably about use examples through, through their time period. So we're starting to see some modules popping up that we wouldn't have traditionally seen. So for example, University of Southampton, where I teach, uh, the School of Engineering there has introduced a machine learning and AI module for their engineering students. So the idea isn't to just teach them in the same way as computer scientists, but to prepare them in a way that allows them to make best use of these tools. We've kind of always taught a lot of these sorts of processes, luckily, but I think we're going to see more interest in statistics, earlier examples through the first year onwards, 
around understanding how data is such a core part of what we can use and the opportunities to utilize that. So perhaps more just examples through and perhaps understanding the progress of the students through those four years. And presumably that means for Southampton and many other universities, teaching engineering students drawing in expertise from other departments and faculties and, uh, and parts of the university, people who have expertise in statistics or in AI or computer science or so on. Yeah, exactly. And trying to make most of these cross-disciplinary opportunities. For me, I'm probably almost a computer scientist who works in an engineering uh, school, but having those sorts of people who can talk across those disciplines and understand what are the key things from computer science that we need to bring into our engineers so that we can actually prepare them the, the best for the future. Well, let me take you back to the Lloyd's Register Foundation Alan Turing Institute Data Centric Engineering Program. So you've just launched phase two. That's uh, set for the next few years. What are your key priorities for that program over that period? Yeah, so I think the, the main priorities, well, there's been a little bit of a shift from, from phase one to phase two, and that's probably around more of a conversation around impact than the research. So I think the, the Alan Turing Institute and the Data Centric Engineering Program both set up together. There was no model for how you build a national AI institute because other countries don't have this. And so as a sort of first step, how do you actually go around developing that? I think... Lots of lessons learned through that process, but I think one of those was that, a, that an institute probably needs to sit at that higher impact level, the, the technology readiness levels four to six, to support universities in the best way. We don't want to see to be competing with, with those universities who are doing excellent research, but we want to convene the capabilities there. We want to be like a trusted source for industry to come to and say, we want to solve this problem, what's the best way of doing this? And we can help put together those experts from those different parts of the, the country, perhaps other sectors, other industries, to sort of bring together that, that capability to solve the problem alongside our own capabilities that we have in-house. And so we're always going to continue to do some research to make sure that we're at the cutting edge of, of these approaches. I think we're going to focus more on standards and policy. So how do we effectively engage more with the public? How do we engage more with government? And how do we develop standards that, that utilize the AI to the best. And we'd like to focus more on skills. So how do we uh, help people prepare for the future in this way? We, we kind of have a vision for the sort of tools and techniques we see coming over the next five to 10 years. So how can we help companies and other nations sort of develop these skill sets so that they're prepared for that future? And how do you know if you've been successful? What, what does success look like in five years time? So I said when I first joined that the success looked like each year I present these slides to, to different universities as I invited to do talks. And those slides should look different each year. We should have cool new impact stories each year to be able to tell a story around how we're actually taking that real world research into impact. And, and in a way, if I'm not able to tell those stories each year, if in five years time, I'm still talking about the same stories I've talked about today, then I won't have seen this as a success. I guess more widely beyond that, I'd like to see success in the, the data centric engineering is more pervasive within industry, that we're seeing more and more companies utilizing the term, and that we have spread out internationally to work with a growing number of countries and not just those developed nations that we would traditionally think of like the US, but, but also the developing nations as well. And so I think it's a combination of those factors 
Um, you know, have we saved lives? Have we have we reduced CO two emissions? These are the sorts of things we'd like to see going forwards. Well, let me pick you up on that last point, and you did mention it earlier: the idea of bringing some of these techniques into the global south to solve problems. How are you planning to do that? Yeah, so I think our first step is that we want to go on visits. So um, having worked abroad previously, uh, culturally things can be very different in different nations. And so our first step is to go across, make visits, talk to universities, government and industry in those nations to understand how they'd like to work and what they think we can do to support them with that. It's then looking around mechanisms for how we can make those exchanges. I'd very much like to see the comments into the Alan Turing Institute so that we can bring people from different nations here to work together to explore some of the techniques that we're using so we can transfer those to people and send them back. Uh, I'd also really like to work with companies in those different places to understand how we could actually take some of the tools that we've developed and bring them into those nations as well. Fantastic. Well, listen, you've got a lot to do over the next five years. It'd be really fascinating to see how that turns out. So that's all we've got time for today. And Professor Adam Sobey, thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Adam Sobey, Professor of Data-Centric Engineering at the University of Southampton and Programme Director of the Data-Centric Engineering Programme. You can find out more about this programme on the website of the Alan Turing Institute at www.turing.ac.uk forward slash research. Meanwhile, details of all the work of the Foundation for Science and Technology, including all our events, blogs, journals, and all previous editions of this podcast can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Until the next time, goodbye.